Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Sandy. I am delighted to have you back on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Uh, you, We were just talking before we hit the record button. I think you were one of our earliest guests. We're going to have to go back and do some homework, but I'm guessing you were probably in the first 25 or so, and now we've got you back here probably somewhere around 250 episodes. Um, delighted to have you back. Before we dive into our conversation, Sandy, how about we just let you introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. Hi, Jason. Good to see you. I'm Sandy Bliss, Chief Advancement Officer for the Corps of Cadets at Virginia Tech. And I have a long history of fundraising, but what brought me to Virginia Tech and the Corps of Cadets is that my father was in the military and I lost him while I was at University of Miami. And this was a way for me to be able to honor his legacy through the Corps Cadets. So, yeah, and I think that was Sandy. That was really a lot of what we talked about with that uh, with that previous conversation. Um, was that the way that your work? I remember that vividly. Was the way that your work and fundraising in particular had sort of found find its had found its place, or you had found a place where you could sort of honor 
honor him. And somehow or another, we wove that into whatever it was the the specific topic was. Um, Sandy, we always invite our guests to come with a big idea or bold opinion. Um, you and I have been exchanging messages periodically on social media, and we thought we'd hop on here and have a conversation. What are we going to talk about today? Just circling around the idea of walking into donor meetings without an expectation. And a lot of the comments that I have sent you and I've heard you commenting and I just couldn't agree more. I was cheering from the sideline. Absolutely. (laughs) Don't walk in with a number in your mind when you talk to a donor. Make sure you're walking in with a clean slate and let let that number come from the donor. It's okay to have ideas about their passion areas and what it takes to invest in that passion area. But you're, you're absolutely going to leave money on the table or insult somebody with a number walking into the donor conversation. Yeah, I have. Um, so you and I, I think, have very similar sort of career paths um, in terms of we've been in the field long enough. And I've continued even as I do the work that I do working with clients. Um, and there's I, Sandy, I work with a number of clients. What's your thoughts on this? So I work with a number of clients that have not sort of entered into that room for the first time or that lunch table or wherever they're sitting. Um, and they have never made that ask before they themselves on the solicitor, you know, on our side of the table. Oftentimes there's plenty of information I can provide them. A third party can provide them. Um, but my, 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 my advice to them is oftentimes to sort of sit back and sort of have the conversation. Um, and, and what I have learned is that having too much information in front of them. So having preconceived ideas about where this conversation is going to go at all, whether it's, whether it's on a particular number or a particular project, you know, having it, having some sort of predetermined destination, I guess you could say. Usually, uh, especially for the less experienced fundraisers, I think it's in the way. What's your thoughts on that? I couldn't agree with you more. I've seen people show up to the first donor meeting to my horror and put out a proposal on the table for a million dollars for someone who didn't even know it was coming. So first, you didn't even give them a preface during the conversation, setting up the call in the first place. And now you're going to present them with a proposal that they didn't even know was coming with an expectation that million dollars is where they're at. And in this virtual world that most fundraisers are in right now, that could be even more deadly. They just click you off. They don't even have to leave the meeting <laughs> or exit a restaurant. They just have yeah. to click a button and turn you off. So yeah, I think it's super. Yeah. Important. Yeah. Do you think it's, I, I always wonder with some of the assertiveness or in some cases, I think what we're getting at sort of is, is some of the aggressiveness that we sort of see. Um, I think some of this sort of hinges on the notion that fundraising very closely resembles sales and that sort of stuff. But, but where does the, where, where do you think, Sandy, that sort of comes from? Um, where is that? Where does that originate from? That assertive, that aggressiveness? I think it, I, I honestly feel like it comes from a place, you would think it comes from a place of bold, right? So assertive means yeah. bold, but it can also mean yeah. nervous. So <laughs> those that I've worked with that that probably aren't looking forward to the long drawn out cultivation. And then, you know, you're qualifying and trying to figure that out and leading yourself before you get to the solicitation. It's just a hurry up. Give me an answer. Let me get this out of the way. 
give me the money so I can move on <laughs> to the next person. So I, I honestly doesn't, I don't feel like it comes from a place of confidence, maybe overly yeah, confident, to, but not confidence. Yeah. I, I've been reading a particular author um, and I think I've even chimed on in on these conversations. This is sort of a, a different context, but similar and certainly in the same vein of what we're talking about. But d- does some of it just simply come from fear and and maybe even an, an internally driven fear that I'm not going to meet the boss's expectation or the board's expectation? That's it. I mean, it's a good question because I don't know that it's always even being driven externally as sometimes it's being driven internally by different yeah. fundraisers. If it just depends on who you're talking to. If if somebody immediately tells you that they're aligning their fundraising with sales and they're getting a lot of sales training versus they're really investing themselves in the donor relationship, yeah. that that's going to be the place of genuine where you really have that curiosity as a fundraiser. You're going to ask questions. You're going to listen to the donor and what they want to do and help align some type of valuable investment wherever you are with what they want to do versus I just walked in, Jason, I decided you wanted to do this. Your family all came from this school or this college or this program. And I, this is what you want to do. And, and you're, you're not even connected yeah. to it. You absolutely don't even care about this. You care about something else. And I didn't even take the time to listen, but it was just me checking the box. I qualified you or disqualified you as a person to invest in whatever goals we have in mind, whether it be a capital campaign or a comprehensive campaign. And and I'm just moving on now. I've got another person to get to. So it's more about sometimes I think checking a box than actually getting to a number or you wait till the end of the year. And I know I have this fundraising goal and I just, I'm a million dollars away, Jason, and you're going to put me there and I can just check the box and move on to the next person. So it, it's, it's hard to say exactly where that comes from, but it definitely doesn't come from a place of confidence because if you're, if you're confident, you're going to spend the whole year really talking to this person, thinking about what they want to do and being patient enough to understand they're going to invest when they want to invest. And you may get a larger investment by just being patient. So, Sandy, I'm going to pull back the curtain on, on one of the chapters in my forthcoming book. You manage a team, right? You've got people working for you. Am I right? Yes. That's, that's what I recall. Yeah. So, so one of the things that I – so in late 2019, I was having lunch with a woman in New York City, and I won't name her name. That's about as specific as I need to be. But let's just say she's very, she's very closely tied with perhaps the most legitimate credentialing group in our sector, right? And she tells me I, – I say to her, I say – how many, how many of the donors, how many of the fundraisers in our space, how many of the fundraisers in our space do you think know how to have lunch with a donor? I think that was sort of, because I'm always on here. Anybody who's listened to the podcast knows that I'm always talking about having lunch with a donor. And she said, maybe 10%. She said, maybe 10%. And I thought, okay, here's the, here's the organization that is supposedly credentialing, sort of the, the most esteemed credentialing body in our sort of space. And she's saying 90% of the people don't know how to sit down and have lunch with people. And, 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 and so I sort of attach it to this conversation. If I sort of hinge that, that very, like, I was like, whoa, 
Um, if I attach that to this conversation, I tend to wonder, because this is what the chapter in my book is about, Sandy. It's about the fact that do we even know how to have conversations with donors? Do we know how to sit across a lunch table? Do we know how to sit in their office? Do we know how to sit in their living room, wherever they happen to invite us to be? Do we even know how to sit on a Zoom call? And with with someone who may be a relative stranger to us, do we even know how to have a conversation? Or is it that we come up with all these sort of, you know, we jump the gun on the proposal. We know exactly what we're going to ask for. Perhaps it's motivated by fear. Perhaps it's nervousness, whatever it is. Perhaps it's motivated by the boss. But Sandy, is really the question that we just don't know how to have conversations with these people? I think that's a good question. But all I could think of when you said 90-10 was the, you know, 90% of what happens, 10% of what you do about it. So I think yeah. this is this is the reality that we live in, right? You walk in and 90% is what's actually happening in that room and 10% are what are you going to do with that information? Whether you walked yeah. in thinking you knew how to cultivate whether you think you're the expert at cultivation and you're going to yeah. you know, teach everybody else how to cultivate. I think the 10% is kind of important. And I love that she said that because the 10% really is what are you doing about it? So maybe that's the 10% of the people that are actually doing something about it and the 90% that are trying to figure it out. But this virtual space that is not going to go away for fundraisers because it does yeah. make you, know, you get in touch with potential donors that you could have never reached, whether it be your budget or logistics or whatever has caused you to get to that place. So figuring that out a little bit quicker, you know, what is the, what is the standard practice of getting on a virtual meeting with a donor? Is it that they understand the donor? Do they understand how to even access that technology? Do they know how to handle that themselves? Have you prepared them for the type of conversation? Right. Because I can assure you that you're getting to the conversation of money a whole lot faster. There's not the waiter coming to the table, whether you're getting lunch or whether you're getting coffee. And there's not the usual, we're walking together to a table. There's not a lot of the rest of this happening. So you're like you and me, face-to-face, -face, you're going to have a conversation. Hey, why'd you call me here? What are we going to talk about? And, and what do you need from me? And you get with the A personalities, they are going to ask you a lot sooner, what do you need from me? What do you want? Right. And are you right. going to, with deer in the headlights, not know what to say in that moment and having the ability just to be genuinely curious? There's no one that you're going to have a meeting with, especially if they're affiliated with the organization that you're part of. You call them to a meeting, they're going to be so excited you want to hear about and learn about them. But if you start hitting them with all kinds of things you have thought about, ahead of the meeting and what you need, you know, if I told you, Jason, here's what I need, you already tuned me out because everybody needs something. <laughs> so, yes, but if I yes. have an opportunity for you, you're going to handle it much differently. The conversation between you and I. Yeah. I, I, I think we've, I, I, I think fundraising hasn't, I, I, people hear me say this a lot. I don't think fundraising has grown up to the place where we know how to have conversations with someone who is, by definition, you know, prof professionally speaking, perhaps a fundraiser. And, and on the other side, we don't know how to have, you know, a conversation with somebody who identifies as a donor. And so we build in, but we build in between all of this stuff, all of these sort of mechanisms and tools and control, you know, control systems, whatever they are. 
um, to basically avoid sort of the messy ambiguity, sort of complex, uncertain space that exists between like you and I right now. We don't know where this is going to go, but you know, in, in some ways, I think that like the conversation I was having with this woman in New York, I think, you know, my service here on the podcast is a service to the non to the fundraising professionals who just don't know how to have conversations with people. Um, there's a poet, there's a poet who does, who writes poetry in the work. He, he, he works workplace related poetry. I don't, I don't, his name's white. David white is his name. And he says, the conversation is the work. And I don't think we've, Sandy, have we not, have we not figured out in our fundraising space? And it would seem like we, enough of this would sort of come from the nonprofit sector in general, because I think the nonprofit sector as a whole is a lot about the same thing. Have we not figured out that a lot of the work that we do really is just the conversation? I, I don't think we have. And it's more the donor conversation than our conversation. It's, it is more of, you having the ability to ask open-ended questions and actually listen and not try to fill that space because every donor is different. Some are going to have these really quick wit personalities who are willing to ask you questions back really fast and answer your questions really fast while others take a little more time to process and not having that ability to notice social cues, to be able to anticipate the conversation ahead of the conversation. I don't have anyone set up my donor meetings for me because I want yeah. to hear your voice. I want to hear what you're thinking and I want you to know what I'm thinking and why I'm meeting with you so that you're not coming to a meeting with me and then think, oh my gosh, you know, why, why did you call me here again? You know, right, this right, is the, right. I think this is so important to just, to just be that very, curious, inquisitive person ahead of the meeting and allow the donor to learn why your prospect or whatever they are in your um, transition to becoming a partner within your organization, being clear with what that is and not just limiting it to money because a lot of people can influence a lot of change in your organization. So if you, if you start like a salesperson, going back to what you said, being a salesperson versus a fundraiser, you're missing opportunity to bring somebody into the fold of your organization that maybe can introduce you to others or give their time, whatever they plan, you know, whatever their time allows for, but you've got to ask those questions and let them know why you want to meet so that you can have a clear understanding walking into that meeting or whether you're getting to a virtual meeting, they know why they're there and they aren't surprised by me getting on a call with you, Jason, and just saying, hey, so the reason why I know I just said I wanted to hear about your experiences at whatever organization, why I really called you here is that I need, you know, you to invest in this. We're trying to reach this match. You weren't prepared for any of that. I need to give you a clear understanding of what it is and give you the ability to tell me on the call ahead of me actually getting face to face with you or the email, however you set it up so that there's a real opportunity for this donor to have a voice in that conversation versus I'm talking at you. We're talking together. I seem to have, you've made a couple of comments thus far, sort of reading in between the lines uh, of what you're saying. Um, COVID has only made this more, it sounds to me like you're saying to me, and I, I, I completely concur. Um, 
COVID has only made this ability to have conversations in a virtual setting like this all the more important, not less important. Am I right? You're you're 100% accurate. Yeah, I mean, th- th- there has been better fundraising this past year than the uh, year previous because you're getting the conversations faster, which makes you have yeah. to be a better partner in the virtual conversations and you're not surprising your prospect or donor or alum or whoever you're talking to. Yeah. There's some, there's some uh, academics who call it um, uh, what they call perceived, perceived proximity. Um, I've put the raw, I've put, I've occasionally when I've referenced this concept, I've put the wrong word in front of the word proximity. Um, but I've remembered it's two P's. Um, that's one of my sneaky ways to remember dumb things. <laughs> but perceive what perceived proximity does is kind of like what you and I are doing here. Um, you have to really put on it's, it's not so much putting on your A game, but uh, when I read through it, it's like putting on your real game. You have to be pretty damn real in order for it to work. And if, and if you don't, Ultimately, you can have, and they've been studying this stuff perhaps for the last decade or so since we've become more comfortable and more uh, accustomed to using virtual meeting spaces like you and I are in. But what there's, what they're starting to figure out about perceived proximity is, is that you can have individuals who experience proximity in a more real, genuine sense via platforms like this than they even can with colleagues that are in the same building with them who for whom there is no proximity, there's no meaningfulness in the relationship. Um, and, and it, and it, it sort of, if, if you sort of use that possibility as sort of a way to interrogate sort of the, our practices and fundraising, you can see how some of us can be very guilty, whether we're in the room or whether we're on Zoom of creating no proximity to our donors at all. You know, you, you can literally be sitting in the same room, but if you're just basically there to be a robot to spit out proposals, um, good luck, right? right. <laughs> and, and, and the other thing, it's not, there's no joy in it. I, <laughs> I cannot, I can't, I can't think of a single, uh, let's say six figure solicitation that I've ever made that was so predetermined, um, because most of them were not. But I can't think of a single one of them that was so predetermined to the point where where I lost the joy in it. There is so much joy and surprise and excitement in being able to effectively get away with asking for a six-figure gift that you really didn't fully know you were going to get and maybe didn't even know you were going to be able to act, you know, in a timely way, according to plan, ask for, right? Right. That, listen, isn't, that part of the, isn't that part of the job? Yes. <laughs> listen, the first person <laughs> I solicited for a multi-million dollar conversation, this person was not rated. I wouldn't have guessed that this person could have given that kind of gift. And even when we got to the point where we knew this person could give a multi-million dollar gift, he told me hell no in the first ask. So it's not even yeah. just about the first ask is going to be no sometimes. And usually that is the no is the no, right? But yeah. if they leave a door open, it doesn't, it just means no right now. It doesn't mean no forever because a couple of weeks later, this prospect called me back and said, I've been thinking about everything we talked about 
I was wholly surprised and it was a joyful surprise, right? But if I had gone in yes. in the first conversation, had I known <laughs> that this person could give a multi-million dollar gift, had I walked in with the million dollar proposal, I would have got the hell no a whole lot faster, but I wouldn't have had this relationship at this point with the donor where I understood what this person cared about. And I really tied this opportunity to invest as something this donor cared about. So now this got him thinking for a couple of more weeks to circle back and say, you know what, I would like to do this. And that's the part of it that yeah. you're exactly right. You had this exploration. You're building a relationship. It's almost like walking in to a blind date and asking, do you want to have children on the first date? And this person's never calling you back. You have no relationship with this person and they are not going to call you back. This person just wants to make sure this person just wants to make sure you actually look like the photo that they saw of you on the Internet. This is is true. This is my photo from 30 years ago. And yeah, I'm a completely different person. Yeah, I think I think that genuine. Yes, genuine. Is that the first time you use that phrase or we uh, so you just use the phrase, the idea of a multimillion dollar conversation. Have you ever used that term before? I, yeah, I use it my whole fundraising life. <laughs> okay. But I, I, I totally, okay. So, but that, that is fundamentally a different way than I think a lot of us have been taught. We have been taught. If you think about the way that fundraising gets taught, we get taught about eventually arriving at the place where we have, where we get, we get the privilege and the opportunity to make multi-million dollar asks. So everything sort of arrives at sort of that place. And I don't know, and Sandy, I'll probably quote you on that. I'll probably use that phrase in my book. (laughs) I don't know that we've ever, we ever call it multi-million dollar conversations because it's all so focused on sort of arriving at that end point. And what we sort of, I think what sort of triggered some of this conversation that we're having here today is this idea that sort of some young fundraisers literally think that they can sort of fast track the process of just getting to that end point. But the conversation is really where all the fun is. Yeah. And listen, it's, I don't even isolate the young fundraisers. I've been plenty of experienced fundraisers that have developed this pattern of this is just how they operate. You know, they had a whole meeting, decided what the value was going to be, are convinced they have to walk in with an amount. And this is just yeah. how they've led their life. It's just, yeah, it's not a conversation, right? You, you, yes. you had the conversation with others, not the donor or the potential yeah. donor. Cause you don't even know if it's going to be a donor. <laughs> yeah. You've got to have that conversation. Yeah. Do, do we miss the idea? Um, so I teach over the local college and I get, I get 60 students this semester. And one of the things that I'm really impressing upon them is just how big and how much opportunity there is in the space. Like the nonprofit sector is completely legit is what I'm saying to them pretty regularly. And there are actually jobs that pay pretty well. And you can actually have a pretty legitimate career path in this particular sector. But what I'm oftentimes counter, what I'm oftentimes confronting when I say that sort of stuff is they think that the nonprofit sector literally is like this little mini like they don't know how many charities are out there. They don't know how many universities are out there. They don't know that every hospital is generally a, a you know, has some sort of a philanthropic arm to it. Um, they don't. And I think it's the same assumption that, that sometimes we make when we presumptively go into a meeting with a donor, we think we're the only person in their mailbox. 
Right. It doesn't occur to us that, that it doesn't occur to us that th- that a six figure donor might be getting called on by somebody else for a similar six figure gift. I've always gone into my meetings knowing that I- any donor that I've ever called on for a six figure gift, I can almost guarantee you probably within weeks, if not months, was being solicited for the same gift by somebody else. You're 100% it's just who they right. are. No, you're 100 percent right. Yeah. I can I can look at how many donors we or potential prospects that we've put on the back burner and we're going to get to them when we get the right strategy. (laughs) Meanwhile, we haven't had the conversation. So it's no surprise when they invest in something much more significant and we get to read about it because we didn't have that conversation. You've, you've got to have it. Yeah. You have to, you can't just sit in an office, you and I, and come up with this strategy for, a donor, and we put it off and put it off, and two or three years later, we're surprised, shocked, really, Jason, when they when they give this multi million dollar contribution somewhere else, which is an investment for them. And maybe you had something exactly like that within your organization, but you were so busy planning while other people were having the conversation you and I keep talking about. It's like sequestering yeah. them for a future ask. <laughs> it's, it's the silliest yeah. thing because maybe they're never going to give to your organization. And it's a good idea to go ahead and get that Q&A out of the way or at the get-go so that you can move on and have the conversations with those that really do want to invest in your organization versus just planning for these later conversations. Yeah. And, and maybe that's some of it too. Um, I when when I was at the Epilepsy Foundation in Washington, um, uh, we worked for uh, Danielle and I worked for a very aggressive president at the time, and he was very he was quite determined that we would get solicitations done in the very first meeting. And so perhaps some of this is the pace at which and the expectation that you know it's kind of like that old you know you don't ask on the first date, and some bosses insist that you ask on the first date, (laughs) Um, but. But but I think uh, in in all of my coaching, I have always said you don't ask in the initial meeting. So we track in our coaching methodology, we track initial we only track two types of meetings. We don't care if there's an ask being what asks are being made and what not. But there's an initial meeting, which is always that first one. And then everything else is a subsequent meeting. And we don't want asks being made in that initial meeting. And in some ways, what we're doing there, we have an outline of keyword questions that we use. In some ways, we're just using that as sort of training space, not so much for the benefit of the donor, but for the benefit of the fundraiser to learn how to have these conversations. Um, We just want to have a consistent place in the pattern of work that you're involved in, where you just have to sit down in front of somebody who, you know, at first is is a complete stranger. And by the end of the conversation, you would enjoy spending time with them. That's... That's what you want, isn't it? It's. I think you're 100. percent You know, I've I've been told that perhaps I'm a bit aggressive because I I always want to find out in the first conversation, are you ever going yeah. to invest? And I'm not yeah. asking those that specifically. Yeah. And so you could say that I sort of ask on the first day, but it's but it's more of I need to make sure we're actually going to have a relationship, Jason, that ends up how yeah. I want it to end up. And it's more about asking a, a couple of open-ended questions. And the main one that I always want to ask is if you have invested, I want to know why. 
Yeah. And that yeah. one question is going to lead me to understand if you're going to invest again, because you're either happy or unhappy that you invested and you already know how you feel about it. So I'm going to now yeah, know. You're, you're, you're doing what we call getting. So we have five questions. Uh, the fit, the fourth question is what we call getting money on the table. Um, we're getting money on the table. We're asking the question, you know, what other organizations do you support and why have you supported us in the past? Because we want that development officer to get very comfortable having the conversation about money. Um, and when you ask that question, it inevitably, uh, oftentimes it, 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 if, if it's a very generous individual who is inclined to give on the first time, it, it ultimately leads to a gift sometimes in that first meeting. But I'm guessing you're getting, I'm guessing you would call that getting money on the table. You want money to be a part of the conversation. I, I want them to understand why we're talking, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I don't right, want them to right. think we're lunch buddies or coffee buddies. I've right, worked with plenty of people right. who have somebody every year they're having coffee or lunch with, because that's pretty much how they're cycling in and out. Five years later, you could ask them, so where's this person? What are they going to do? They cannot tell you, Yeah, which is really an unfortunate waste of resources. And if you were being honest with yourself and honest with the prospect donor or whatever, you have them in your cycle. If you're being honest, they don't want you to waste. And if they really care about your organization, they don't want you to waste money. There are some donors who are happy to allow you to have a nice fancy dinner with them every year. And we just continue to meet Jason and we're never actually going to have any kind of wedding date, right? We're never going to commit yes, to yes. any kind of financial conversation. We are just going to be in this continual cycle and you, you don't know, you don't know why we're stuck in that rut. Yeah. I've got this. Um, I don't know if you've read it. Lisa Greer's, um, um, philanthropy re revolution. And so she's a, uh, she's a very wealthy individual. Her and her husband made a lot of money. Uh, I don't know exactly how, um, but she talks about this in that book um, that she, she knows, <laughs> she knows that fundraising has got to the place where she knows the development officers who call on her and who will never have the nerve to ask at all. Um, you know, they'll just sort of go round and round. And, and she sort of alludes, I have to go back and look at uh, look at the book. I'm sure I highlighted some of what I'm talking about. But we become, we bec we wear on people. Um, right. If you don't actually get to the ask, you wear on people because right. um, they know you're, the donor's been asked before and they've been asked by people who are much more sort of assertive and, and willing to eventually bring the conversation to that place. Um, but you wear on people. Um, if, if you don't actually sort of bring it to a place where, um, yeah, yeah. Well, they're, Sandy, you're telling them their time uh, invaluable, right? Yeah, I, I think, I think, but I think it all, I think it all sort of comes back to the, I don't, I don't think some of our colleagues where, where this conversation originated and, and I think you and I are in the, so much on the same page. I, I think if we don't sort of have the conversation, get money on the table, but also sort of bring it to, you know, we, we kind of bring these things to a close. Um, but what are you saying to the, I, I, I tend to think what last question before I let you go, I tend to think we can teach this stuff pretty quickly. And I think some of this is because of the way that we have trained people. Um, the, the reason that we're overly assertive or overly aggressive um, or in some cases, not aggressive enough is some of the ways that we've sort of, we've made, we've made the solicitation of the ask, the asking of the gift so 
sort of far down the road in terms of when a fundraiser is capable of doing that. Um, we, we've, we've exaggerated. I, I think I said this to a group last week in, uh, when I was in Alabama, I, we've exaggerated what it is you have, what it, what sort of qualification you have to have to sit across the table from Mrs. Smith and ask for a gift. I, I don't disagree you know, with you. It's, I think it's intimidating he, for some fundraisers, especially younger fundraisers. Think how scared yeah. you were the first time somebody in a leadership title came with you on a visit to see a donor. <laughs> you were sure, a nervous yes. wreck and you felt like you were being judged the whole time. And it it doesn't get any better for you if you are letting that sort of intimidate you versus as a teachable moment watching and learning from somebody who's been doing it for a while. So it, it needs to be just more acceptable that you, fundraising is not perfect. And so if you're a perfectionist yeah. in spirit and quality, you're, you're going to never be perfect at it in fundraising. We all make mistakes. You're dealing with live human beings that have right. ever changing rules and roles. So no matter if you thought that person was going to invest, they told you they were going to Jason two years down the road, they still haven't done it. They may have things happening in their life that have changed that, but you're such a nice person, Jason. I don't want to tell you, no, you need to help that donor yes. be able to say no. And that is really just those skills of thinking through the conversation. And it's a real conversation, real human beings. They're not just a number or a box that you're checking. If you are having this, you know, Q&A with them like a person, you're going to know and you're allowing them the ability to be human and you to be human as opposed yeah. to your conversation earlier about robotic, right? You're just walking yeah. in. You're going through every step that you had written down and you can't change it because then I might really mess something up. I think you're, yeah. I think you're a hundred percent spot on. It's just, it's giving yourself permission to be human in these meetings and giving your donors permission to be human and have conversations like you and I, like real people that are just talking right. and learning together because you are learning. Yeah. You don't know this person. They're not family, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's quite amazing sometimes when you get into these these conversations. So a lot of the work that I do, I, I I go shoulder to shoulder with executive directors a lot of times. So they they themselves, not the fundraisers, but the executive directors, um, you know, the person who's usually reporting to the board. I'm going with them and I'm teaching them to helping them develop the confidence sitting across the table with the lunch with it with the major donor. Um, and they have never learned how to have these conversations. They have just never. Um, we had a guy, we had a gentleman. Um, was working with a private school in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, five years ago. And this gentleman was a retired naval captain. And he said to me that he had gone on three meetings in a single day with his chief development officer. And he said those meetings were exhausting. And I thought, yeah. You know, you're really, he, he needed to get his head wrapped around how I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, this is a, this is a big guy, military guy, you know, lifetime career on big boats and those sorts of things. And here's a guy who sat down and had breakfast, lunch, and maybe a late, late afternoon tea or something with a handful of donors. And he was mentally exhausted. Um, and, and probably didn't come home with a lot of checks. And so I thought, uh, I thought he's, 
but at the end of the day, I also knew Sandy that he would make for a much better boss now because he was the guy that was sending out this development officer of his every day to do the same thing. Right. Um, and so, and we, so we've got to teach these supervisors how to do this. I I think, I think that is in a nutshell, exactly the point. If you have somebody teaching you that is not doing this, (laughs) it's going to be those conversations where you're sitting in a room, Jason, you're just anticipating my donor for me, telling me what I should be doing. And I tell those on my team who have questions about, you know, am I, am I handling this the right way? It's you, right? It's you a hundred percent. It's how you feel, what you hear, what you see, and then your best guess because human beings change their mind and they, they have life events that happen through those conversations. So relying on yourself and giving your fundraisers permission to rely on themselves, you can give the tools, but at the end of the day, it's their conversation. You've you've got to give them the ability and the autonomy to have that. And so you would hope those leading fundraisers or those that are academic leads or like this naval, retired naval officer, just trusting that your fundraiser is out having those conversations. And if you're exhausted, were you talking the whole time? Because, right, yeah. because then that you learn nothing. No wonder, right? You didn't come home. I don't think I, I, I got to know that. I don't think he was talking the whole time. Okay. I think it was just now his chief development officer might've been taught. His chief. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what was exhausting about it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it, it was it was just one of those three day, you know, it was one of those three meeting days. Those of us like yourself and myself and anybody, most of my listeners know that if you've done three, because occasionally there's not a lot of times in a fundraiser's, you know, uh, schedule that you do three donor meetings in a day, but it can be done. And, it, and and it's just a lot of work. And I think what he was saying to me in terms of exhaustion, it was not physical exhaustion. It wasn't because he talked too much. Okay. It was the mental energy. It um, was the mental energy of being sincere and engaged and real. And, and maybe that loops all the way back to our, maybe, Maybe what my retired naval captain was learning was that to do to be present and to be real is to not be able to rely on a very scripted, you know, it's much easier just to rely on a script and just follow the script and arrive at the place where you make the ask and perhaps you get it or perhaps you don't. Um, but but this guy probably just felt like he was sitting in the he was in the game and he he he, uh, he did his job. That's my guess. Well, maybe you just yeah. answered the question we started with. You know, why why do you think people just show up with a proposal? Yeah. Because it's less yeah. exhausting, Jason. Yeah, right. Than a million dollar conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, well, if and if and 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 a warning, a warning to all of those who do think that they can show up for and, and perhaps this is what you and I, you know, two individuals who are experienced in the field who talk this who know what we're paying people to do, for example. If all you're really my concern for people who would show up with a proposal and who can basically read a script are not all that high value of employees anymore. Um I mean, I mean, we want people who can have deep and meaningful conversations. I think that's what I think that's what concerns me with some of this prescriptive sort of stuff that I pick up in some shops is that 
you know what? I, I, you know, whether you close the deals or not, eventually the value of you as the, in the, in the employee seat might, might start to be diminished because you're literally just behaving like an automaton. Well, if you think about it, Jason, <laughs> if you throw enough of those out, you're eventually going to get a million dollars. So is it yes, really so bad? Right, right, right. It's just odds. <laughs> it's just, it's just playing the odds. <laughs> Sandy, we lose our listeners at 40 minutes, which is where we're at. So um, I'm going to let you go. But Sandy, if there's somebody interested in reaching out to you, um, perhaps they want to continue the conversation. They've heard something you've said and they thought, I'm going to reach out to her and uh, continue the conversation. How would you suggest that they do that? Listen, I'm on LinkedIn. Just reach out to me on LinkedIn. Sandy, it is certainly been a pleasure. You're always welcome back. All right. Thanks, Jason. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.